Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and we'd like to thank you for joining us. Please like, share, and subscribe to support this and other great content. Our guest today is Jeff Neal, a singer, songwriter, arranger, and guitarist who's best known as the lead guitarist for the iconic Canadian rock band Streetheart. Jeff joined the band back in 1981, making an immediate impact on the recording and release of Streetheart's self-titled album. That album would go on to be the most successful in the band's catalog, with many of the songs Jeff wrote remaining the staples of classic rock radio. After the breakup of Streetheart in early 1984, Jeff worked as a session guitarist in Vancouver until the spring of 1986, when he was recruited to join up with the legendary Australian rocker Jimmy Barnes. For the next decade, Jeff wrote, recorded, and toured worldwide with Jimmy, selling over 3 million records during that time, earning gold, platinum, and multi-platinum albums in a number of countries internationally. Jeff has also played a significant number of shows throughout North America as the guest guitarist with Loverboy between 1995 and 2000. In late 2003, Jeff was invited to return to Streetheart, and he's been back with the band ever since. And today, Jeff joins us from his home for an intimate look back at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. That guitar, unbelievable! You know, I remember when you got that guitar. We were playing in Red Deer in 1976, and I remember you playing your first gig with that guitar, and it had the maple neck on it. Yeah, yeah. Was it 76 that I bought it? Did I have it? Did I have it? Did I buy that before you and Mike came out? I want. I thought I bought it at the end of 75. Did you? Well, well I knew you had the Les Paul. Yeah, I had the Les Paul, but I, I, I remember when I saw this guitar. At Long McQuaid, I had originally bought the first year on the road a natural finished left-handed Stratocaster right. with a maple neck that I wasn't really. I went, yeah, it's left. It was my first left-handed guitar, but it wasn't particularly an exciting guitar. It had a big blocky neck, and it was it was kind of blind. I didn't like the natural finish. And I saw this. It, that was remember it was kind of off white, kind of cream color. Yeah, yeah. Maple neck. Well, when it met its demise in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. Oh God, eh? so funny. That was just like, like yeah, it's, that, it's still what, such a great story. That what was that? What was that guy's name? Radar. What was the, the light man's name? That oh well, there was a young kid that used to work there. His name was Brock. Mm. Remember, there was a kid, but the guy that did the lights. I, I want to say he kind of did. He have sort of dark hair, glasses, mustache. Yeah. Kind of guy. I thought it was I, like radar, radar, quasar, one of those kind of might, might names. He probably yeah. nicknamed himself, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't count when you nickname yourself. I'm the Duke. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm, uh, yeah. So it's oh, we got to we got to tell the story. So that there's there's Jeff. We're playing at the the Pen in Prince Albert, which is set up like this sort of nice Las Vegasy kind of dinner club with tables that went out at the same height as the stage, basically. When dance floor on the right, dance floor on the left, like uh, stainless steel round dance floors. Am I correct so far? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and then you're you're out the very last song at the end of the set, and you're out standing on a table. Oh, and you're out there doing your big power chords and stuff, and your last little solo and stuff. And as you're coming back to the stage, walking from table to table, the light man that worked at the club decided to add to the show and turns oh. on the strobe lights, so, so you fantastic. lose your footing. 
And it, it was like probably about four feet down. Well, I'm going to say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was. It, yeah. Yeah. It, it was. It would be at least that, Mick. Because they were like bar, they were like uh, bar tables. Like, yeah, kind of like, like stand up bar tables with high stools. I think. Yeah, and so there you are. You walk back, and all of a sudden, be- between between the last table and the stage, th- you went down. I remember watching you, and I was just like, because I'm standing on stage for the big finale. You know, arms up in the air, the peak yeah. sounds and things. Yeah. And then, and all of a sudden, I see you go down, and your leg goes down. Your guitar goes up like this, and it hits you in your chin, yeah. right? Oh and man! So the neck breaks this way, yeah, right. As <laughs> and down, and 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 you come up, oh. and we get into the back room, and there's blood gushing out of your chin. And your neck is broken this way, like the strings are here. The neck yeah. is actually broken halfway down this yes. way. I remember, you, I remember you taking duct tape and duct tape because we're getting an encore, of course. Oh, we gotta go. <laughs> it's like Phantom of the Paradise. It's like Phantom of the Paradise, right? It's like yeah. you're in the bathroom, in the back room, dying, and people think, "What a great show!" What a great show, man. And, and so you you took duct tape and duct taped up your chin so it wouldn't bleed anymore. And I remember th- that's the power of the Fender products, right? Because yeah. you're sitting there like this, the neck is hanging, and you went oh, like this, you went pop, and you went. And I think it was, you had to tweak it a little bit. It was still relatively in tune. <laughs> and you went out and you played for the next two weeks like that until yeah, you yeah, played in yeah. Saskatoon. Yeah, I remember it because I can remember I could feel, I, I sanded the neck down, but you could feel a little bit of the the the, the separation between the two hunks of wood and the neck being held together by the truss rod. Yeah. So kids, always buy a Fender guitar. <laughs> no kidding. You, know? you can throw yeah. them off a roof and they'll still play. I, yeah. uh, yeah, and then I remember when you got to uh, Saskatoon, you gave it to Ed Rohner. That's correct. And and because you you what you, the reason you want, wanted the White Strat, of course, was your Jeff Beck thing. You loved Jeff Beck, and he had that wonderful guitar. Was it on? No, it wasn't Blow by Bow. It was on uh, Wired. Wired. And yeah. he had the he had the White Strat with the rosewood neck. Yeah, oh, yeah. And and of course, you couldn't find a White Strat with a rosewood neck in a left-handed model. You yeah, know? which one so do you want? Had the new one the bone, the yeah, you had the bone white with the maple neck. So yeah. The, so you bring it to Ed Rohner to say, okay, this neck is broken. Can you make me a new neck? And the first thing he did, he had that guitar for at least three months, right? Oh, I think, uh, right? Mick, I think it was more like six months. Yeah, because he hung the body in his drawing yeah, room for that whole yeah. time. Because I remember it coming back and it was like a third of the weight. Yeah, he said to me, this guitar is soaking wet. He says, I got to keep this guitar in a kiln for six months. And I'm like, oh, really? I just well, got it. Well, that's the whole thing. I remember the old adage was, oh, that guitar's got a heavy body. It must sustain. No, it's just full of water. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. your guitar came back. And I remember you, we were getting into an elevator somewhere. And I remember you were just playing the guitar outside the elevator. And I was going, wow, that thing's really loud. It almost sounded like an acoustic guitar. And you said, yeah, yeah ever since the body dried out, it sings like so well. Yeah. 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 Well, it's still it's still the same hunk of wood. That's what the only thing that's left over from the original guitar yeah. is the wood. But Ed did a great job drying it out, and then, and it's still used. It's still the same neck that he built for that thing, Mick. And that's seventy-eight. That's that's these. That's uh, I, might have been I seventy-seven. Pardon me. It might have been seventy-seven or seventy-eight. It's, well, uh, it's, yeah, it's in I, that I, neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, maybe even before that, because it was pretty early on. That it, it that well, well, we were playing at the A4 when you brought it in to him, so it had to be 77 because before that we played at the China Doll. Oh, right, okay, all right, yeah, of course, yeah. the China Doll, yeah, God yeah. bless the China Doll, yeah, yeah. Saskatoon, yes. what a great scene, though, right? No kidding, bands yeah. everywhere, 
Yeah. And what, what was the name? Of, remember the band that we used to, we walked and we walked across the street from Gibson Jacks and the one guy, he was a PA guy, guru. Oh, Jerry Bowers. Jerry Bowers. And he, his band was in there. And I remember they were doing some Steely Dan stuff and yeah. like doing a bang up job of it too. Yeah. And going, wow. Yeah. I was playing this was... rundown bar and they were so great. They were playing at either Jack's or Yips, right? They were those yeah. were the two bars across the street from the A4. Yeah. And then the China Doll was a block away. So there were all these clubs you could run around to. But yeah, yeah I remember that. And I think I want to say that that Craig Khalil was playing drums in that band. Oh, I'm and not he, sure. He, yeah, he because he and I know, I mean, just because Craig played in in uh in Wascana with uh with uh with Daryl Guchal and, and Ken oh. City before oh, wow. Kenny joined the band, right? They were called Wascana. And right. uh, and uh, George Martin was in that band. Uh, Bob Deitcher, right? Uh, um, and uh, and I think and that's the band that Kenny joined up, and they they became Kenny Shields and Witness that ruined the street heart. Of course, that's another. Story. And when that happened, I guess that's when Paul went and did the Great Canadian River Race. I, I think I, Paul and Matt were doing River Race around that time. I mean, we never got to see them. I mean, you know how it was for us. We were playing six nights a week, fifty-two weeks yeah. a year. We used to beg to try and get a holiday. We could, yeah. Well, the only reason we got to know witnesses because I remember. Well, for one thing, you were semi-related to Bob Ego. I guess yeah. you kind of were. You yeah, know, we were brothers. We both married sisters. Yeah, and 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 then we. I remember we met them basically. If I'm not mistaken, the first time we met them was when they were over at the Besborough Hotel doing a sound check, and yeah. we spent the afternoon watching their sound check. And and Guy Scott was doing their lights and sound, and we walked in going, yeah. "Wow, this sounds amazing." Yeah, you know. Yeah, I was well, doing quite a bang-up job. Band too, you know, the source coming from off that stage was pretty good. Oh, no kidding. That's you know, I, I couldn't believe the discipline they played with, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very sophisticated players for the time. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, that that's kind of where they came from. I think that, uh, you know, uh, the, the longer that I know uh, both Ken and Daryl, the more I appreciate just like the depth of their musical knowledge and what they've done. They both were in marching bands at a very early age and are, and are very have very broad instrumental uh, knowledge, you know, of other instruments. And then Kenny comes in and he's this amazing front man. It was a great combination, you know, of, yeah. of talent and charm. And, and, and it was just, it was a perfect storm. Those yeah. guys. Yeah, no, they, they were I, like, I remember the first time, I think I, I think we went together with, with our girls at the time. And I think it was that Lassiter's no Lucifer's in Calgary to see Streetheart play for the first time. I right. Think. Yeah. And it was. It was. It was. It was the one. You know, the the original band. And yeah, I remember yeah. just going. And of course, they were playing all original material. They might have done under my thumb, but at the time, yeah, I'd never heard under my thumb. I, yeah, I never yeah. heard the Stones version. Yeah. But I, I and I remember just going, "Oh my god!" Like talk about yeah. a locked-in band. Yeah, just so good. I mean, I, I remember we saw them. My, I keep thinking it was the first time that we saw, saw them, and I, you know, it's a long time ago. Uh, was was at St. Mary's Call, or Mount Royal College in Calgary. Remember they played that? Oh no, I, I no, I saw I that that was that was I think that was the second time I saw them. Okay, I think yeah. maybe maybe it was the first time. But yeah. yeah, I mean, they were just, I mean, I was just what, what, like, what, as you were alluding to, it's just really what their level of skill and the way that they were all connected as that one band together. Yeah. You know, that yeah. you just, I mean, and you went down the lineup, you, you'd look, you'd see Daryl and Spider and Kenny and Maddie and Paul, and each one of them was just 
really on top of the game, you know, it was mm-hmm. just what a great yeah. band. Well, they, yeah, they, they breathed as one unit for sure. They were like mm-hmm. one living organism, you know? Yeah. Well, it was a real lesson. I remember being quite depressed after watching them. Yeah, I know. And, and, and I, it, I, cause I remember when you joined Streetheart, I mean, you, you were like, Oh, you know, cause to play with those guys with that kind of discipline. And cause that's the way you feel too, your whole locked in thing and, you know, the groove and you're very groove oriented, you know, and, yeah. and, and, um, I, and I remember just thinking, oh, wow, Jeff and Streetheart, that's going to be amazing, you know, because it was like exactly what you needed, you know, well, to satisfy that thing. inside thing. Yeah, yeah. No, and Mick, it was, it was, a, it was, at the time, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty great thing, you know. I mean, you know, all bands are, have their, have good si- upsides and downsides, but the, certainly the playing aspect of it and working with guys like Daryl and Kenny and Spider and Bob Ego at that time, yeah. that sure taught me a lot. Uh, what kind of love is this? You now, I've told the story a million times, and I probably fabricated yeah. a whole bunch because it keeps changing. You started writing that song when you were in Shama, right? Uh, I I th- I think I had that concept for you because we've talked about that. I think did I play? I remember hearing it because I remember, yeah, I, I I remember hearing kind of your, cool your, your your chorus. Yeah, and that's that. That's basically I had I had the chorus concept, that idea, uh, and I had the intro riff. And because I was trying to do like all the young dudes, right? That right. that's that right. beautiful arpeggiated guitar thing. And I said, well, how can we do, I do something that will make me happy like this, like that, but not take me to court? Right, 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 right. Uh, uh, which is what you you know you got to be somewhat creative about. That, pay that pay tribute to they call it. Pay tribute to yes, yeah. in the spirit of all the young dudes. <laughs> yeah. uh, but and then and Daryl, who I'm going to his his recollection of that was. He had this idea for this verse that went da 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 da, and he and then I'm waiting in line. He had the B section, and then he went again and again. I keep hoping there's love in their eyes. And he went, uh, and I went da da. What kind of okay? So it actually it was from two different sources. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was two different sources because I really. All I had that I probably played for you was I got Mick. I got this cool chorus thing here. Right. I got this idea for a chorus thing. It's going to be great. So well, I remember hearing it. Of- I remember hearing it for the first time because when when because to tell the story, of course, Jeff and I were in Shaman together. Like people have heard of Shaman. Some of the people, if you haven't, go back on the other videos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it was Shama uh, had broken up, and uh, I. It, it it was sad, and I bought a house outside of Vancouver, and I had a wife and two ch- small children, and I sort of said, I can't do this anymore. We have no gigs, but, but, and I started working in a music store. Then Jeff gets Jeff and Michael Sicoli form a band with Tommy Stewart, and it becomes Trauma. And the reason it's spelled T-R-A-M-A is because it was Trooper and Shama put together. That was the whole idea. And that band would just play Friday and Saturdays and pirating other bands' equipment. So the band would be there all week in a club, and they'd come in at the end of the week and play just the, the last two sets of each Friday and what Saturday. What about your dogs, eh? Yeah. <laughs> but it worked good for everybody because these bands wouldn't have had the gigs without you being there. Yeah, either. yeah. I think it actually worked good for them. Especially with Tommy at the time, it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a real win. Because yeah, Tommy was a bona fide rock star at the time. I mean, they had, sure the, was. Sure they had was. the biggest album in Canada. Yes, know? they did. Yeah. And, and so... When uh, and and then and then so I was still I was working in this music store. I ironically playing drums in a weekend band because uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to do something different. 
yeah. Well, well I was getting calls from wedding bands that I go audition. They call me for an audition. I go, this sucks. I mean, I just got out of Shama. Like, I'm yeah. not going to play, you know, a uh, never ending st- song of love with yeah. a bad band with an accordion, you know? Right. And so, uh, so anyway, somebody, somebody had the smarts to say, Hey, you want to play drums in our band? I went, no, that's something I'd like to do. That's something I want to do. Yeah. Well, cause at least then I'd be learning, you know? Yeah. 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 Anyway. Yeah. So, and, and then, then all of a sudden I get a, a, a call. I don't know if I got the call from you first or from Michael first. Cause I remember you were, you might've actually had the, you might've called me and said, Hey, I got a chance to audition with Streetheart. And it was just a sidebar. I think you'd, cause you and I were, still yakking i remember we we were jamming when you were we we jammed one night i remember you had that you had that lick i I could play it right now i could play the lick and we were jamming this lick at the fun palace that's right that's right yeah and it was me and you i I don't know who was playing drums and i think if i if i remember correctly for some reason mike evans was there Right. Okay. And, and it was weird. I I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, so me and you were in contact, and I think you said you had this chance to possibly join Street Art Audition or whatever. And then at, in the, almost in the next breath, Michael Sicoli asked me, "Would I take your place in in Trauma?" And yeah. I, I said yes before I thought about it. I'd never played lead guitar before, really. You know, the last time I played lead guitar was with my my high school band Balderdash and Sault Ste. Marie. And you know, a, a, after that, I was more or less your rhythm guitar player. Um, Anyway, so I, I had to learn quick anyway, but um, the what I was getting at was uh, you. Well, I got the audition. I got had a chance to go audition with yeah with the street art thing, and I and I do remember that. And you were you were the would be the obvious choice for for Mike, considering we we have so much history together. Yeah, and musically, and I mean, you know, and that that kind of really took off for you. I mean, I was there for a cup of coffee almost. Yeah, yeah. Know? Only a few months, and then you guys made, you know, yeah, it's yeah, grown into a huge family tree. Yeah, yeah, it's so funny because Michael and I still work together to this day. Well, me and you and Mike have done some things together too, which is great. Like the, you know, yeah, that uh, that legendary Dean's thing. Those videos still get tons of hits. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and that was yeah, just a one-off, well, one-off for a cancer gig, you know. Well, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's it's just so good. I mean, the, uh, I mean, it's the one thing that I've always so appreciated about both you and Michael for all these years is that we just have this. We kind of just it just falls together. We don't have to talk through anything. We don't have to do anything. It just okay. You take this. I'll take this part. You take it. We we've always fallen into our natural roles, mm-hmm. and 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 Michael's just so musical. Yeah, you know, and and I and I and I I'm going to give us some love on that too. I think that, and I'm going to include myself that you both of you guys are two of the most musical musicians that I've had a chance to ever work with since I've been playing music. Just it's just come so naturally, you know. There's no nothing forced about it. It's I think we all have this love of good songs. Well, we we sort of we all grew up together. We we have very similar DNA, you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because you know there was a wedding, the uh, Frank Elliott as our music teacher in high school, yeah. and the wedding talk, band stuff, the wedding band circuit. 
Yeah, and all those all those gigs and that and you know the smoking area where there was always the talk of I remember you turning everybody on to Captain Beyond at the time, which I would have never heard of in a million years. Um, yeah. And all this all this great music, the Doobie Brothers were coming through at that time, and everybody had this shared thing. Uh, Pink Floyd, you know, yeah. Queen. All, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Queen. Queen. Oh yeah, yeah, Queen. Yeah. Oh I getting, god, yeah, I remember having the debut album. Was one of the first guys in town that had it. It was so great. Well, the first the first album I heard was uh, the, the the second album, Queen Two. Yeah, Queen Two. Yeah, and then I went back to Queen One, and then I remember yeah. going to Dan Week's place one day, and that was the first time I heard the third album with uh, Bring Back Leroy Brown and Killer Queen. And yeah, yeah, so great. sheer sheer heart attack. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great album, such a great yeah. record. And then and then I I was I had a timeline thing that I always thought that Night at the Opera came out in 1976 because that's when Shamo was out on the road, but it actually was released in 75. So I must not have listened to it till 76 or something. Yeah, I I I I think we caught up on a lot of stuff. I mean, so much music. There was there were so many great records coming out. Uh, you know, and when you look back on 45 years, it's hard to really timeline, you know, a couple of months. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes, but I remember that. I can remember being in Calgary early days of uh, um, when I think of uh, a night at the opera. I just I always think of us still in Calgary, but we're 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 sort of transitioning towards the coast mm. kind of thing. You know that yeah. album, uh, the uh, Storm at Sun Up. Yeah, uh, Vanelli. Yeah, Storm you at Sun Up. That uh, that album. Uh, well, that was a nice thing. You and Brian always had stereos on the road with and you yeah. had quite an extensive extensive album collection you carried around with you and you yeah. always bought the newest stuff so i remember you like silk degrees coming out of your room i was going wow and you know of course storm at sun up and and what was great about calgary is you were with colleen at the time so you'd give me your record player and your albums and you go to colleen's place so i always had your collection in my hotel room yeah so you know i remember kiss destroyer i was playing that at the yeah, time because yeah, yeah. i yeah. to me was the best kiss album still to this day yeah bob ezrin was magical on that and then, um, and Storm at Sunup, of course, uh, mm -hmm. Silk Degrees, once again, um, all that all stuff. Aerosmith records. Yeah, that uh, Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic. I remember the very first three weeks of our of our band, when it was still called Barney, we were playing in Nanaimo. And I remember almost every night you would give me like tutelage up in your room about <laughs> teaching me how to be a rocker. You oh, know? God. And, and, it, and it, okay. You got to listen to this, and we'd listen to Toys in the Attic from front to back, front to back, and 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 then you'd say, because I I I hated Kiss, I thought they were a joke. And you went, no, 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 they're not a joke, and I'll tell you why they're not a joke. And you go through the whole thing, and then you play me songs. <laughs> you just got, got me to appreciate stuff that I normally wouldn't wouldn't have really listened to, you know. And it became a great learning experience for me. It opened up my eyes for a lot of stuff. That was well, cool. You know, You're a great mentor. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, Mick, and I, I, I just, you know, I've had that hammered into me by, by, by friends and guys growing up too. I mean, I think it's just something we didn't we shared in that and that that passion that we that we had at the time, and and it was just such a profound time musically, and we were learning how to be professionals. Well, you had your friend. What his nickname was? Country. Yeah, yeah, Phil Pfeiffer, yeah, and 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 he was kind of that for you too, right? Like he, he was really kind was. of he was a real hipster when it came to music, and he was the one that would sort yeah. of turn you on to that stuff. Yeah, he was. I mean, Phil was a couple of years older than me. He had a bit more money, so he could buy new records and stuff like that. And he had he had excellent taste in music. I mean, right. I, I think of some of the firsts uh, that that I listened to: at Captain Beyond, uh, you know, Mata Hoople, uh, you know, uh, 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 Super Tramp. 
you know, you know, Jethro Tull I knew about, but he like he always got the latest releases, and he say, he make me see, sit me down, and say, listen to this. Yeah. He'd so say, you'd, you say, so you passed you passed it on to me because that's sort yeah. of how, how you were with me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it was like you know, it was almost like you know, being a bit pushy, but it was like it's it's trying to it's it's expressing the passion for the quality of what it was, and you know, ultimately in the end, I mean. Uh, we we grew up with the greatest music, you know, that and it's yeah. such an incredible and, time period. Yeah, the, the experimentation of the 60s, the, the technology caught up with the experimentation in the 70s, you know. So the, yeah. even the 70s had marvelous, incredible. Well, I mean, every decade has great music. Oh, yeah, does. yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't be told too much my father, you know. But, no, it, no. you know, the 60s, the 50s were great for what, uh, and si- 60s yeah. were so experiment, uh, experimental, but they didn't have the technology to, of all these things they were dreaming up. And then, in, but in the seventies, all of a sudden now there's multi-tracks. Now there's proper studio isolation. Now there's this, now there's reverbs. Yes. Now there's echoes. Now all the stuff that they used to have to sort of invent on the fly, you know? And, 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 and they, they actually figured out, I think in the seventies, they realized that rock and roll was something that could be monetized. They figured yeah. out how to build systems, PA systems that could, that could play, you know, when the Beatles play Shea stadium, somebody went, Whoa, okay. There's some big money to be made here. Well, we need a PA system because <laughs> they had none of that, right? I, I, you know, really I, never, that. I never asked Mark Farner about the PA system that they use because uh, Grand Funk played in Shea Stadium. Yeah. And if, I think if, if I'm not mistaken, they might have outsold the Beatles or sold it out quicker than the Beatles because by then yeah. there was marketing, you know? Yeah, like yeah. All that stuff was new. The Beatles broke all the records. Nobody was ready for it. When the Beatles came out, nobody was ready. But like, he's, I, and I think you're right about the Grand Funk, whether they might have sold out faster or more tickets. There's something in that. Uh, and I'm trying to think what that would have been maybe 1971. I'm probably, probably 70, in that 71. era, 72. I'm trying to think. I it think would have been was, after I'm your captain, I'm sure. So I'm thinking maybe 72, 70, somewhere in there. Well, I mean, their first album was called Grand Funk Railroad. And I missed that record. The first album that I actually heard by them was the red one. Oh. You know, the one that red album. Is that Funk. the one with Mean Mistreater on it and stuff? I, I'm trying to remember what the what the, the tracks were. Inside Looking Out. Inside Looking Out, yeah. Yeah. And I think the next album was Closer to Home, was I'm Your Captain. And I think that was about 1972. Okay. Because I think, I think that album came out about the year that I moved. We Our family moved back from Preston back up to the Sioux. That okay, so that's different. what I was going to get at. So you were born in the Sioux, right? Yes, I was. So, yeah. so and your bro- your older brother Kim was as well. Yes, Kim was born in the Sioux as well. But we Barb- all, actually, all the kids. My sister Barb was born in the Sioux as well. Really? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, she was. A, she was. I want Barb was uh, four when we moved. I okay, think. and then you moved down to Preston. Yes, which is near. Which is now which is now called Cambridge. And so it was basically it, Preston. There was three small towns. There was Preston, Galt, and Hesper. We were about maybe five, ten miles from Kitchener Waterloo. Okay. We were south of the four hundred one from Kitchener Waterloo. And, and so, I never asked you this. Like your dad and mom never played instruments. Yeah, they did. Yeah, that dad was a was a was a trained piano player, like classically trained piano player. See, I never knew that. My, yeah. All the well, years you know, I've, known, I've never known that. Here's an interesting thing about my dad. Uh, my dad was could read music, fantastic. Put down a songbook, he'd start playing the songs. If you took the music away from him, he didn't know what to do. Right. He was he just he didn't have any real. Imp- he could sort of improvise, but he, he was a reader. Right. Like he read it like a book, right? 
Right. Uh, my mom played sort of cowboy guitar and showed me my first couple of chords. Here's a G chord. You know, I'm left-handed. I'm learning them upside down on her right-handed guitar. Um, so, and, you know, so they were, they were both musical. Mom used to sort of sing to us all the time. And, and, uh, and dad always had a nice record collection of classical records and mom's, the two favorite records for me that mom had were the Everly brothers and Chubby Checker. Yeah. I love those two albums. Yeah. Great. Uh, Chubby, uh, 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 they were both greatest hits packages and the, the Everly brothers. I just loved. I, I know that. I mean, I know that very best of the Everly brothers. It's the two of them on the, uh, on the cover sort of. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of back to back, if I remember correctly. Uh -huh. No, no, they're, they're facing each other. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's that, I had that album too, and it was a it, there was a border at our house that had that album, and that was the first time I'd heard the Everly Brothers, and I was just blown away. Yeah, it was so exciting, right? Hearing those just those chord changes, the E to G to A. Yeah, it was like wow, that's like really rocking stuff for me. Yeah, yeah. So okay, so you started playing guitar at what age? Um, I probably started picking it up around five, six years old, just kind of plunking on it, right? And that was your mom's guitar? Yeah, mom's guitar. Yeah. Okay. My dad had bought her a Hofner uh nylon string guitar through the through the high through the collegiate, through the teacher's oh. music program. Oh, okay. We had this Hofner nylon string guitar at home. Okay. And I sort of learned how to play chords on that guitar upside down. And uh, you know, I kind of and I I and I plunked on the piano because we had a piano there. And I took piano lessons for one year before we moved. So I, I think it was probably nine years. It was just after, you know, it was a couple of years after the Beatles were out. And, you know, we were playing. I wasn't, I was trying to learn how to play guitar, but I was more interested in standing in front of the mirror with my cardboard guitar and pretending I was the Beatles. Right, right. I was still, you know, seven years old, kind of a kid, you know. Uh, I took piano lessons for about a year. Uh, and... Uh, I, I, I like my teacher. I hated this, the piano lessons because you're. I'm going. I don't want to play these songs. It's like, come on. I want to play. She loves you or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now that, that was moved down to Southern Ontario. I never took. I never. I never continued my lessons. That was. I. I, I found the guitar. So w w you guys lived in Manitou Park, am I correct? When That's were, correct. Yeah. And so is that the house you were born in? Uh, yeah, that's the house I was born in. Yeah, sixty-two Amy Street. Okay. Yeah, okay. and we were actually when I when when I was born, Manitou Park was outside of the city limits, so it was a big deal when the city when the when Manitou Park got amalgamated when this when the when the city expanded. Yeah, I, I seem to recall something like that because I remember I was born on Prentice Avenue in Sault Ste. Marie, and there was an area called Tarantoris. Yes, all these different sort of suburbs that were actually there seemed like they were their, their own entity. You yeah, know, Sault Ste. Marie was just Sault Ste. Marie proper, almost downtown. Everything else was a was a, a like a territory, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's a sub. It wouldn't be a suburb, but I remember uh, when we drive into town on Highway 17, going you know towards past the Caswell Hotel. Right. Then you see the sign, "Welcome to Sault Ste. Marie." You know, the right. the, the boundary was about there. Right. It's maybe a half a mile down Highway just 17 when it turned into Trunk Road, probably. Yeah, because the yeah, highway because the highway turned into Trunk Road somewhere around Churchill Plaza. Right. Yeah. I just I don't know where the official. I wonder if the official might have been, uh, um, right the corner there is that Black Road, or the that run you know runs over runs at the foot of Fin Hills. You know. Oh, that's, isn't that Gully Bay? Gully Bay Road. 
No, that you know that the, oh, I, it, it or maybe, Garden River Road, or maybe Garden River Road. Yeah, because that's the one that goes up to Hiawatha Park and all that, right? Right. Yeah. And yeah. it turns into landslide road and right. Yeah. Uh, you had to be from the Sioux, folks. <laughs> yeah, no, kidding. no kidding. No, that's yeah. great. Uh, uh, anyway, so so you moved to Preston. Your dad obviously got transferred there as a teacher. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. He. Um, I think he was just he wanted a change. Uh, I think Southern Ontario was kind of happening at the time. This is the this is 1966. So. Uh, my dad's uh, good friend, Bill Lishman, was down there. And, you know, there was lots going on in the art community that my dad was sort of gravitating towards more, I think. Um, where we, 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 wait, let me interrupt for just a sec. Where, yeah. where, where was uh, your dad, Owen, and your mom, Barb? Where were they born? Uh, my dad was born in in, uh, in Thunder Bay when it, was, when it was Port Arthur and Fort William. He was born in Port Arthur. Okay. Uh, my mother grew up in a little town north of there called Hudson. Okay. Sue, look at Sue, look at, that's, uh, where my, that's where my mom was born. Yeah, yeah, Weird. Yeah. Weird. yeah. And Barb was born in the, in the Sioux. Uh, and then uh, the, mom and dad moved down to the Sioux fairly soon after they got married. Um, and that, because dad took a job at collegiate. Uh, now, did he always teach art? I'm sorry? Did he always teach art? No, he was actually uh, for most of his career he was an English teacher. Oh, yeah, he was an uh, he taught English. He taught art later on because he took some. He wanted to just do something different and took art courses. When we had moved down to, um, when we moved down to Preston, uh, he used to go to summer school in Toronto, and and was taking these courses so that he could become an art teacher because he was he sort of loved that. He loved the creativity. I think my dad was a very artsy creative person my mom is a little bit more salt of the earth i think in some ways that was the divide between them i think that they you know they my parents never had a bad relationship but they probably weren't as close as they they might have been but they could but they were very different types of people but you know for me i love them both equally and right, you know right. my mom and dad well yeah. it's, it's important it was probably gave you the balance you know yeah uh, kind of you know <laughs> you know it's yeah. funny about that you know, I, when I when I when people when I talk about my parents, when I when I think of my creative self and all that sort of stuff, I think of my dad. Whenever I'm in trouble, I need to find think about a way. How am I going to get out of this? I think of my mom. Mm -hmm. My mom's a survivor. You know, my dad was the art, arty, you know, language, artistic person. My mom was a my mom was a real hands-on kind of survivor. You mm -hmm. know, and I think that having that that that. And the mix coming, you know, typically, you know, it's it's the dad that's going, come on, you got to learn these skills. You got to do this, kid. You got to do this stuff. It was kind of a bit different in our house. I got that from my mom. Come on, kiddo. You know, I'm going to teach you how to do this. You know, I'm going to teach you how to do this right. You know, yeah. you want to learn it. You want to have one clean clothes. I'm going to show you how to wash your clothes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? Interesting. Yeah. So, when okay, so you go down to Preston and you're sort of plunking on your acoustic guitar that your mom yeah. had. Yeah. And, and so when, so I'm... Uh, when when did you get that that old strat that you had when you came back to Sault Ste. Marie? Ah, okay. Well, let's 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 go start because it was a right-handed strat strum left-handed. Yeah. Now let's go. We'll go back to the plunking guitar stuff. I'm kind of we're I'm ten years old when we moved to when we moved to uh, uh, to Preston, and I'm okay. kind of really getting into music. Then it's 1966. Beatles. Are, I mean, my whole life is just music, and I'm kind of figuring it out, and I, and I'm kind of going. 
Um, and I'm said, mom and dad, mom, look what I can do on your guitar. So mom and dad finally relented and went to Simpson Sears and bought me an acoustic guitar that I had then was able to restring in a traditional format for, right. for, uh, for left-handed. Right. And then I kind of really took off, you know, and, 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 and at that time kids were playing in bands, you know, they were, you know, every kid in the neighborhood, sorry, that's the phone's ringing. It's our agent. <laughs> um, uh, every kid in the neighborhood, you know, it's the sixties, right? Every kid plays an instrument or is trying to. Right. Um, and I remember my brother had played with the, uh, the, uh, the, the bagpipe and drum uh, corps in the Sioux out of the armory that would, that, that, that came yeah. out, out of the armories in the Sioux. Pine, Pine street. Yeah. On Pine street. And yeah. Kim was really an accomplished snare drum player. Uh, Kim was real. My older brother, Kim, for those of you who don't know, was, was really an accomplished musician. He was very disciplined and very talented. You know, I mean, he was the real star of the family when we were growing up. I was just kind of the geeky little brother, mm-hmm. but uh, anyways, dad helped Kim get a drum kit. I mean, we got a, and, and or maybe no, Kim had a drum kit before, but he had a, a set of coronet drums. They were kind of cheap. I, I, I know coronet drums really well. I mean, they were okay, but he outgrew them really quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and he was starting to play in bands and he was, and dad was going to help him get a real set of drums, a set of Rogers drums. And, and dad also agreed. He said, okay, Jeff, you get 300 bucks. You can buy a, a, a guitar and an app. And I, and you know, and the McCartney thing was part of me. So I kind of, I bought a bass and I wanted to get a Hofner Beetle bass, but dad said, you kidding? That's 250 bucks. You're not getting one of those. Yeah. So I got, a, I got a knockoff. I got a pyramid knockoff of a violin shaped bass because I could flip it over for left handed. It made complete sense. Right. And I got a little trainer bass made amplifier um, from Trev Bennett music in Kitchener. Wow. And Kim got his Rogers drums. Um, and that's the first thing that, and that, that was, and I played my first bands as a bass guitarist. That's where I first started playing. Wow. See, yeah. that's something else I didn't know. Well, I remember, I remember, and, and I was, you know, we were playing with kids in the neighborhood. Hey, you got a guitar? Let's get together and play, you know, and everybody knew a song. I know, what, do you know anything? I know Gloria. Dun, 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 dun. You do that for five minutes and stop, go, want to play it again? Okay. Dun, 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 dun. You go, I've got to go home. I got to go home and have dinner. <laughs> I was, I was walking over for one of these little practices and there were a bunch of guys out playing road hockey and I'm walking by them with my case and they go, Hey kid, come here. What do you got in that case? I've got a guitar. Can we see it? You know, it's good. So I opened up and they go, oh, it's a bass. Then they said, can you play it? I said, yeah. What, what songs do you know? I know the letter by box tops, right? Because right. it had some moving parts, right? And I right. could play it. And so they said, you want to be in a band? We're having a band practice tomorrow. So I went to the band practice and there were 10 guys there, 10 kids. It was about 10. Yeah, there was two bass players, a drummer, five guitar players, a tambourine player, uh, you know, all the kids, all the ki- everybody in the neighborhood that, you know, were friends, they all got together and, and, you know, we played a couple, we played Gloria, you know, and probably, I don't know what else we played, maybe walk, don't run or something like that. Just the chords. Nobody right. could play the solo, but keep it, keep it going. And we just did that for like, you know, 10 minutes. And, but that band eventually got, you know, how kids are after two weeks they go, I can't play guitar. It's too hard. You know, and they just drop off. Eventually, it got down to four of us. And I probably told you about uh, John and Danny Wright at some point. The two, they were, they were, uh, John played guitar and Danny played drums. And then, and then we all met, uh, and I met a, a, another kid who was a guitar player who was 
my first really great musician that I played with whose name is Keith Merch. And I probably told you about Keith. He's a, his father, Doug, was a wonderful jazz guitar player, good friend of Chet Atkins and the Merch family. They're all, and both Keith and his brother, Glenn, have become very accomplished jazz guitar players. Wow. And, and Keith played guitar. And he was a great, like, he was the your first good musician. Like, he was like, wow, you're really good. You can play stuff. Right. You know, we had a good band, you know, and that's sort of where it started. And then I outgrew, I sort of outgrew bass. You know, Hendrix started to come along and I, I needed to play guitar. Right. You know, and I traded in that bass at, at Archie's pool hall for a six-string Riviera electric guitar. And then went home and told mom and dad, hey, mom, I just traded my bass for a guitar. And they went, that's great, Jeff. You're late for dinner. What are you going to do with that thing? So I, I learned how to play on that. Um, and getting to the Strat, we're getting to the Stratocaster here now. That's um, okay. I, I have been... Um, uh, racing motocross at that time for the last couple of years with my dad because I loved I was pretty keen on bikes but had a really bad accident practicing busted up my 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 ankle and was on crutches for months had one of the kids in the neighborhood because they used to take my bike out in the lawn and wash it and stuff every day and clean it and polish it and just look at it and go oh man can't ride this anymore not at least for a couple months he said hey you want to sell it they're like, oh, maybe. Dad, can I sell my motorcycle? Oh, God. Oh, yeah, if you want to. I want to buy. And, and so I sold it for 300 bucks. Went back to Trev Bennett Music. And he had, I went there with Kim, my brother Kim and my dad. And I was initially looking at an SG because it was yeah, to two horns, it was yeah. the same price. And I was going, oh, yeah, okay. Like, it's got the cutaway. It's kind of like, you know, Terry Kath kind of thing. And then Kim, my brother said, no, nah, you want. That's Stratocaster up there. Well, that's what that's the guitar you should be playing. Like Hendrix, come on. What are you thinking? No SG for you. It's a Stratocaster. So I bought that Stratocaster for 300 bucks. I think it was 1957 L series Stratocaster. Now, what was the finish on it? Because when I saw it, it was what you'd, you'd sanded it all off. Well, I, being a dumb kid, it was a basically it was a, a, a three color sort of sunburst kind of finish. Okay. It had been redone, it wasn't really. You know, like it was missing the, you know, it had been refinished completely. Um, it didn't have the original controls on it. It had Telecaster knobs, you know, the little metal knobs that the, right. the, the Tellys have. It didn't have the plastic Strat knobs. It didn't have a decal on it. I mean, it was a Fender Stratocaster, but it just didn't, it had been some, you know, somebody had finished, refinished the neck and uh, they, and they took the, the, this, the, this, the decal, the Fender Stratocaster decal off the headstock. So it wasn't on there. So, uh, you know, it, 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 but it was still, but the, the, it was, it had been brand new finished, but I had started just hacking away at it as a kid with them, you know, I had been chopping away. And then one day I decided to sand it down because guitars, a lot of guitar players were playing with the natural finished guitar. It was kind of the thing at the time. So I just sanded the top off and I didn't bother with the rest of it. Right. If you remember, it just had well, the top sanded off. If I recall, now the neck position pickup never worked on that, did it? No, no, and I and I never had any money to get a new pickup. Right, it, it sort of worked. It was like it had a maybe you know part of the wiring, copper wiring, and I had no resources to get anything fixed. I couldn't go get a pickup. Hey, Dad, can I have fifty bucks for pickup? No, here's the other one. I didn't <laughs> yeah. need to put the middle pickup on the neck pickup. You know, I mean, you know how we we have so much knowledge now. You don't know it goes. It doesn't work. Yeah, you know when you're a kid. You don't think of those things at the time. Yeah, there was no Dave Reimers in our group. 
<laughs> no, there were no Dave Reimers in it. Uh, and Dave would just rewind it himself. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, Dave, where were you back then? Uh, Dave would have been about five. Yeah, probably. I was going to say, uh, um, so I remember being in the boarding band rehearsal room there, the, the, the practice room, yeah. and you were in the back, that back area. You had You had your twin reverb in there. Yeah. And your strat. And I remember the free rider just come out and you did the opening look to free rider. I went, how'd you get that sound? He said, Oh, you just put the switch in between these two pickups. I went, what? He says, yeah, it's not, it's not this pickup. It's not that pickup. You put it on it and it makes both of them and it puts this other phase sound. And that's what he did for the record. I went, Oh my God. Cause it was one of those sounds. I went like, it's, and of course it was Hendrixy cause Hendrix used that sound too, but yeah. free ride was like, in your face, that yeah. other phase sound. That was yeah. to play that song without the other phase sound is useless to me. You know. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the song. No, not at all. But yeah, I, I remember that, and and I think Vince Buxell brought this horn. It was a horn about this big that was made for a loudspeaker. And I remember you hooking it up to your Fender amp, and oh, it was God. just nothing but top end. Oh, <laughs> oh God! <laughs> of course, sure. More speakers. Let's plug into everything. Exactly. It was all oh. experimental. Oh, funny. Yeah. Uh, one of my one of my favorite amps was the uh was the the reel to reel a tape recorder from the music room. Remember that great there was a great reel to reel tape recorder in the music room. I used to take I used to let Frank Frank or used to let me take it home and I could plug my guitar into the input and drive it. And you got this fuzzy, distorted, kind of like quasi no time Randy Backman kind of sound out of it. Right. Love that. Well, well, that's and and later on when you had your Ampeg V4 with Shama, you used to run your Champ into that doing the same thing. Yeah, it was because Jeff Beck was doing that. Jeff Beck was preamping his Marshalls with a little Fender Champ. I thought good enough for Jeff Beck, good enough for me. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't know. Yeah, you got yeah the I remember. You know, I read it in probably in one of the guitar magazines at the time. You know that you know it was the same thing with the Randy Backman thing. Remember how I flipped the input jack over? Yeah. That was a Randy Backman trick. I remember reading it many, many years ago. I think my first year on the road and reading in some, you know, whatever Guitar World magazine, him interviewing and that he and he had he had done that on his Stratocaster and it made complete sense. He talked about the ease of use of being able to pull the jack in and out. You know, yeah, well, and you can use an a, a, an L shaped jack. You can use an L shaped jack as opposed to just a straight jack. Yeah. 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 That must have been his legend guitar, which I, yeah, I, I think I, it was. I don't know what happened to that. He's I, I that went missing. It's he still pines for that guitar because that, yeah, that's yeah. always that's always yeah. let it be or that's always let it ride stuff. It was all that. Guitar. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I, I mean, I can still see it vaguely. I mean, it's got had a whole bunch of different types of pickups and stuff, and didn't it? I, I'm not. It sure. had the, the, I think the headstock got broken. Originally. Yeah, and the headstock was like a spear. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it, it got broken off in the round edges of the fender headstock, and he just quickly stuck the E string on underneath. Because so I think it had five tuning pegs across the top and one at the bottom. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't remember that part. Interesting. I, I, I think that's right. I think that was. I think that was the last minute quick fix to get get it ready for the show. Oh wow! Because because the headstock broke up and it broke the hole where this where that high E tuning tuner would have gone right. Yeah, interesting. So they just put it at the bottom of the headstock. What was left of it? So, so I remember. So when you came to the Sioux, because I mean, there was all us guitar players that were hanging out and boarding, and you know, we all thought, felt we were kind of good and stuff. And then all of a sudden, you came in. 
You came in about what, grade 11? Grade 11, yeah. Yeah. And I remember you coming in, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, this new guy, Jeff Neal. Yeah, he's, he's supposed to be a good guitar player. And everybody heard you play. And it's like you could just see everybody putting their guitars back in their cases. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you'd raised the bar so much at Guadding. It was like, holy smokes. I mean, I, I became an instant fan, but it's like I was incredibly humbled by you because I you had, whatever it was you learned down in South Ontario was not what was happening in Sault Ste. Marie that I remember. You you came back with all this. For one thing, you used to, I remember you used to use a, a, a steel finger. You know, yeah, they used to use two of them, actually. Yeah. Is that, yeah. So you, you used yeah. to do these little triple things, like almost pseudo Dominic Triano kind of little things. And yeah. Yeah, it was it was like this. You had a whole new way of approaching the guitar, and, and when you played songs, you played them like the record. I remember you doing "Hocus Pocus" by Focus in that ba- in that same band room, and I'm going, "Holy crap!" You know, <laughs> it blew my mind. Well, you know, I mean, there were I, I, I was lucky to have. I mean, and you, but you know this, Mick, because you have older brothers who are musicians. You know, having an older brother as a musician and his friends. And I and we got to go to the practices all the time. So we were always seeing guys who were better than us. We were always and we were always learning. You know how it is. You go watch the way a guy played a song. I remember seeing a guitar player who could play Funk Forty Nine the right way, and I went, oh, "That's it. That's it. That's what it is." Because I was trying to figure it out what it was. And then once you figure it out, it's really it's dead easy. But if you don't know it, you know. Yeah. And when she's and and that was always going to high school dances was to learn. For me, it was I spent my whole time standing at the front of the stage, basically in front of every guitar player, going, "Okay, here's that song. Oh, that's how he does it. Okay, he's not doing it right. Uh, that's not right." Which is you know, why I still can't dance to this day, and yeah. I am I'm petrified on the dance floor because every dance I went to was to watch the band or I was in the band. Yeah, well, Mickey, that's I think that that that's I think that's a that's a musician's thing. You know, it's like when I go to a show, I'm not the guy jumping up and down screaming. I'm sitting there really quietly watching. Like, if I was the whole audience, you'd think you were going over terribly. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, a song finishes, and I just sort of nod my head and go, wow, that was amazing. I don't go, what? You know, (laughs) I want that when I'm playing, but I don't react that way. But I'm listening and studying. And I think that you you and I and all of our, everyone that we grew up with was the same way. We wanted to learn. Yeah. You know, and that that that's it, and that's why we are good dancers. You know, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so anyway, I got we got. I want to get moving on this. So when you so you get to Bwating, yeah. Did you play with Brian Armstrong right away? Like when you had a band with Brian called Bedwear Tucket. Yeah. With, uh, with yeah. And who was in that band? Greco? No. Uh yeah. That was that was there was um, myself, Brian Armstrong, Bob Shalou, right. uh Ed Erickson. Oh, what what? Uh, but before Ed Erickson came in. It was uh, Dave Greco and okay. Chico and Chico Borelli. Okay. And then uh, when, when Dave was when Dave quit or whatever, like there was a mutual uh, agreement to part ways. Ed Erickson came in to play keyboards. Okay. Organ, basically, he played organ. You know, he did, keyboard players only had a keyboard. They didn't have there were not many Rick Wakeman's going on out there. Yeah, yeah, far fuse. Uh, but yeah, that, I, I I met Brian. I, I, the the summer of 1972 is when we moved back up to the Sioux. I didn't really know anybody, right? I just basically spent the whole summer listening to Fragile, Close to the Edge. So, how did you meet? How did you meet Brian? Well, I um, there was a there was this um, 
little music festival outside of town at Buttermilk Hill. Okay. Um, I had met a couple of guys. I met, I had, I had met a few guys uh, that summer. Uh, I had been introduced by a guy from Boating who I met down at what was the pool hall beside Milios? Milios there. There was oh, a pool. Oh gosh, I, I would never remember that. It was a it's sort of a. It was. It wasn't a. It wasn't an old school dark pool hall. It was more like a teenager's hangout pool hall. Right. And I met a, a fellow named uh, um, Ronnie Garchor there who was I, I, and he, he came out to talk to me because i was real tall and he was he was he went to boy he said you should go to boy you know play for the basketball team they got a good music program up there and he introduced me to a, a drummer named greg pilo oh yeah and greg pilo i met another guy named russell foreman and and i sort of these were older guys they were a little bit older than me they you know i'm still in high school i'm still 16 they're more like 18 19 out of school um and good musicians and, uh, but, uh, and I jammed with him a few times, but it was just, you know, we just jammed a few times. There was nothing really came of it. And I went to see this music festival that at Buttermilk Hill, a little local festival. And those guys played up there as well. But there was this other band. Uh, uh, they were called Farkas Armstrong and Sep. And it was right. Brian Armstrong. F and S. F and S. The F and S. right. Uh, and there was so it was George Farkas on bass, uh, Jan Sapp on guitar, and Brian Armstrong on drums. And they came on and played. They opened up with "Walk Away" by James Gang, which was really cool. Went, wow, cool! And they played a bunch of grand funk tunes. And I, uh, and compared to the other previous bands, I went, okay, these guys are a real rock band. You yeah. know, Brian was, you know, he was a oh, Brian was great. Brian was, you know, just was absolutely insane. amazing. You know, he's, you know, he was a handsome blonde, long blonde hair. You know, confident as all get out. Yeah. You know, and really great musician. I thought, I want to be in a band with this guy. You know, yeah. this guy. And, you know, he introduced himself to me and he was just, you know, I mean, Brian is just like he is, you know, there's a reason why he's been so successful in his life. You know, he's yeah. just wired that way. He's wired for success. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, and that that's that. I'm so I met Brian that summer. We started sort of jamming just the two of us, basically, right. you know. And try, and then we sort of formed the Bedware Tucket thing. Kind of grew out of that, um, and then those guys kind of became the genesis of the Barney band that went on on the road with Brock Gillis and Art Rebick. Brian told me at one time that he actually phoned your dad to convince him to co-sign a loan for you to buy that Fender Twin. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Brian, right. Brian was he was a salesman from day one. Oh, yeah, Just I know that he was. Just do her. Just do her, man. Just do her. Yeah. No, no. Brian was, you know, oh, he was man. very convincing. I remember my dad going, "Yeah, yeah, Dad." He agreed. He said, "Okay, you know, you know, kid, yeah. you know, you know." He, I think he liked his his moxie, right? Yeah. And 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 in some ways, Dad was always a real champion of what I did. Yeah. You know, he loved what I did. You yeah. know, he wanted to be up there on the stage too. Oh, well, of course. Well, uh, well, and getting back to Brian for just a brief bit, I remember yeah. it, how he bought his drums. As he would go out and he'd buy a set of drums from some j junker that people are throwing yeah. out, buy them for 25 bucks, take them all apart, polish them up, make them look like something, and sell them for 50. And then yeah. out of those, uh, out of that, that, he'd buy two other sets of drums for 25 bucks and then sell those for 100. And he kept doing that until he could afford his first that black set of Ludwig drums that he ordered through Frank Elliott at the school. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like he just, it was one of those guys that just wasn't going to be held back no matter what, you know, because he no, didn't, no, yeah. he didn't have yeah. a family of means whatsoever. His dad had died at 10 years old. They, they were probably living on the equivalent of food stamps most of their lives, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Brian in one generation completely 
altered the the, the path of, of his family. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the Armstrong family re- represents a very successful, highly functional, business oriented, loving family. Yeah, you know, and and Brian built all. I mean, I give him full credit for all that. He's just, I mean, Mickey. I mean, we're you know, I don't know whether I met a uh, you know. A finer person, Brian Armstrong, in my life. Yeah, yeah, me too. A thousand percent. I, I, um, I, once again, bringing up our first gig in Port Alberni as what Shama, but it was called Barney. I remember the very first day checking into the Barclay Hotel, and I, I knocked on Brian's door or something to, for some reason, and I walk in and he's reading How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he yeah. he was reading self help books at such a young age. Yeah. You know? Like and he was applying them. He wasn't just reading them. Yeah. Oh no, no, and, no. He was building his. He was building a. You know, his business model. Yeah. You know, he really was. And you at know, twenty, I, at twenty years old, as a leader of the band, a foam ring first thing in the morning. Like he's sound asleep. Eight o'clock before it's even finished the ring. It's like hi there. Like yeah. immediately awake. Immediately on to like from deep sleep to hi there. You know, yeah. like how yeah. do you do? <laughs> well, I think he just. I, I think that he had a a unrelenting desire to achieve success and, and achieve all the things that maybe he, some things that he missed out when he was younger. Mm-hmm. I don't think he did that in a dark way. I think he did it in a very positive, joyful way. You know, Brian, I mean, he's, just, he's so upbeat, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, I mean, like, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm going, what are you reading that for? You know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'm, I'm here to play music. You know, I got some talent. I'm a good guy. It's all going to work out. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, I remember when we were courting, uh, getting Bruce Allen as our manager, and Brian went out and bought the BTO book so that he could read the BTO story to figure out how, okay, how are we going to be able to approach Bruce Allen? And so he he lent me the book, and I read it as well. And it was, it's, it's, you should read this because we're going to get Bruce Allen as, our, Allen as our manager. Now, we're in, like we're playing Regina. You know, Bruce Allen could have been on the other side of the world. And he was, you know, he just finished managing the most successful group in the world, BTO at the time. And yeah. and the chances of us having him as a manager, it was a, it was a, almost a pipe dream at that point. But he was convinced that we were going to get Bruce Allen, and we ended up yeah. getting him. Yeah. But but he, that's the thing. He was buying buying a book, anything to figure out, okay, what's inroads to get Bruce Allen, you know? Well, he was, Brian was into positive thinking. You know, at that time, I mean, you know, he was always, you know, that that whole just doer. Right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's a philosophy that my dad, uh, he, my dad talked about that, and I didn't really. He used to were have this little button that just said "do it" all the time. And he'd tell it to his students. They'd go, "Mr. Neil, what should I pay? Well, I don't know. Just do something. Just start. Just yeah. start." You know, it's like it's the whole writing thing. If you're a writer, whether you're writing a book, whether you're writing a song, the hardest part. Of, of writing is sitting down yeah just sitting down and starting yeah I, this gets easier from there the, it's really the the hardest part is to start because it's so daunting you know yeah. but but brian is one of those guys that wasn't afraid to start yeah and yeah. he's still learning all the time you know we talk to him all the time yeah. You know? yeah yeah you know he'll never stop learning and, st- and brian will be continue to self-improve for his entire life so brian was a, a year ahead of you in in Bwadik. Right. That's correct. Yeah. And so now, so he was leaving to go on the road. Now you said Bedweer Tuckett sort of morphed into what became Barney, which yes. became the first touring band that Brian left uh, Sault Ste. Yeah. Marie with. And yeah. in that band, once again, Chico was in there. Chico Borelli. Yeah. Chico Borelli was the lead and, vocalist. And, 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 and Bob Shula was in that band and Brian, of course. Yeah. 
Art Rebic was on Art Rebic on guitar. Art Rebic was it? And Brock Gillis on keyboards. And Brock Gillis. So that was the five piece band that went to Toronto to seek their fortune and fame. And I remember, I remember Brian telling me stories that when they went down there, they would, you know, they'd have a contract to play a club for like four hundred dollars for the whole week for them. And at the end of the week, the guy would come up with two hundred bucks. Yeah. Go, well, yeah. no, our contracts were five hundred. You know, or four hundred, whatever. And so we'll take it or leave it. I got a million musicians down here that'll pay for play for less than this. Yeah. So they were they were starving until you know Bill Cunningham came along, you know, yeah, and, and saw these it, these ha- handsome good looking, yeah, <laughs> handsome good looking guys. I mean, Bill was a, a a gay man and and managed the fabulous platters and figured, okay, I got these good young good looking musicians behind the band behind the the platters, you know. Yeah, yeah, it was a that was a I I mean I did that too. That was my first you know when Brian came back after a year being on the road, that was my. That was my ticket out of the zoo. Yeah, and what 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 month did did you leave to play with Barney at that time, uh, and Brian in September? Or did you? Yeah, I would say I thought it might have been October, but it was really early in the fall. Okay, so before you the, okay before this before the snow hit. Now, is it my? Was it the next spring where you came back and asked Michael and I to join? Uh, was it that quick? Yeah, it would be that quick. Because I, I I think once I got out on the road with those guys, I could see, I, I went, this band needs to be better. I mean, there were a lot of things. I mean, it, it gave me an opportunity to get out there and, and get some professional chops. But um, I, I just, it wasn't really the type of band that I saw for myself. I wanted to be in a rock band. You know, I wanted to be in a rock band. Um, I mean, the, the, that lineup with me, Bob, and Brock, and Brian was adequate for doing the platter stuff and for playing little clubs, but it didn't really, none of us were strong enough singers individually to carry it. I mean, I, and it was no, no, there's no offense. We could all sort of sing, but nobody was really a vocalist. And at that time I was so aware of what a good singer, what a great singer, you and Michael Sicoli, what, what, what great singers, both of you are great musicians. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I was fully aware of both of your talents and I'm kind of going, these are the guys that I want to have play music with, because I just, I, I just kind of, I just felt that you guys were, I had never worked with better players than you guys, just naturally. You just, you could, you knew every song, you sang it in tune, you sang the right parts, you played the right chords. I went, these guys are just cut from the same cloth that I am. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just, and I, uh, and I just, I couldn't wait. And so I think it was probably, I was already formulating a plan. I was into Brian's ear real quickly about mm-hmm. that. Brian, we need to change this up. This is Well, no well I know you me. had, I know you had to change Brian's mind about me because Brian sort of thought that I might be a bit geeky. <laughs> no, I mean, you're just kind of all, I mean, you know, you come to a, come to each one of us at any time in our lives, we're kind of geeky and dorky. Yeah. I mean, I spent from my ages from about 10, 11, 12, getting beat up every day. You know, that's where I kind of learn how to play music. That's why some people say, why are you so angry when you play music all the time? I said, I'm not. It's just my catharsis. That's how I get back at the bullies. Right, you know? right. So, I mean, I think, Brian, I mean, I mean, once I got to hear you sing and play, I just went, what? Like <laughs> That I just, was me. That was me, you and Dan Weeks at, at Macaulay's. Yeah. At Macaulay's. Yeah. And it was so, and you were just, I mean, you were the star of the show last, that night, because without you, we wouldn't have got through it, but you just, you had such a 
wonderful voice. I mean, just the tone. Like uh, immediately, I thought you had it. You, you, you reminded me of you. You know, I'm always connecting with, but it reminded me of this that tone that Mark Farner had. He had yeah. this nice kind of soprano male voice, but with body to it, but with range that not many guys had. I mean, we all we, we all we knew about Mike. I mean, Mike was just brilliant yeah. and just could do anything, you know. But uh, uh, I mean, by the time. I went out in the road. I was fully aware of what you guys were capable of doing. And I said, I think we, Brian, I said, I think we can put together something that that's really going to knock people, you know, that's really, really going to knock people out. Well, what was really gracious too, is I remember when we, we, uh, we had those first three weeks, like we practiced for gosh, four or five days in Sean's basement, uh, Brian's, yeah. Brian's brother-in-law. And yeah. then we went to Nanaim or uh, Port Alberni and played yeah. for three weeks. And then our first gig back was in, Red Deer at the Park Hotel in Red Deer. And I remember Bob Shalou from Barney coming out to yeah. see us. And he was so gracious. And he was like, man, you guys are so good. You'd think he'd, he'd be like, he had every right to be critical and yeah, and, yeah. And, and mean. And he yeah. was so supportive and sweet and kind and generous with his compliments, you know? Bob was a, a lovely guy that way. I think, he was, he, I think he really enjoyed his little couple of years out the road having fun. But I don't think he ever, like, saw a career for himself. Like, he didn't, he just, he, we talk and he'd always go, you know, Jeff, you, you got, you got it. You got to go. I'm me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just here to have fun as long as I can. Mm. You know, I, I mean, and I always thought Bob, you know, he was a good player in many ways, you know, like he was a good musician. We played for a number of years. He played bass and, and, you know, he could, he was enthusiastic and he was into it, but I, I think his heart probably lay in other things. You know, he yeah. wasn't like, I saw myself as a lifetime musician. I don't think he ever saw himself that way. I think right. he enjoyed the couple of years of doing it. Then I think he was done. I think he was fine with it. So I think by the time he saw us playing together, I think he was in a good place. Right. Yeah. Right. Bidwood Tuckett became Barney. Barney goes out. Okay, so there's the timeline. So now, January 2nd, because when you asked me and Michael to join the band, that was spring yeah. break of 75. Yeah, yeah that's and right. I was, I was still in high school. I didn't have my grade 10 yet because I was the world's worst student. Um, and I... I didn't care about school at all. All no. I cared about, I, I would go to my music classes and skip out and go down to Carcel Music and jam with the musicians coming through town. Yeah, that's that's that was my schooling. I didn't go to class. I just didn't. And um, so when I asked Dad, I said, you know, I've got this opportunity to play with the best musicians I've ever met in my life. Like I was, I was still vibrating that you would ask me to join a band with you because I was so humbled by you. Like mm -hmm. I mean, I couldn't believe that you wanted me to be in a band with you. And of course, I love Brian too. And Brian was much the same way in my eyes. Yeah. And so then we, uh, my dad thought about it for a few days and he came back and says, I think I'd be making a mistake if I didn't say yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and thank God he did. But anyway, so I remember getting a, a job with uh, Tom Wall's dad uh, at uh, Sue Piano to save up money to buy my plane ticket and get some decent gear and uh, shipped it out before Christmas of 75 and January 2nd. Michael and I landed in Vancouver and yeah. there began the odyssey, you know, it's incredible. It's incredible that it stuck together. You and I and Brian, I'd never played with Brian. I'd never played with you except for one night with Dan Weeks that time. And uh, you and Mike had played some gigs together. I think you'd done some stuff. Yeah. yeah we played. And with, of course, played Michael and I played together. Yeah. What was that? We played Mike, Mike and I played a couple of gigs with St. Blues, which was uh, Carmen and Chuck Gassy, Tom Walls, Randy Little, George Hill, the horn band. Yeah. 
Yeah, I never yeah. saw that band. Oh, so great. So great. You know, again, you know, Sault Ste. Marie, so many great musicians out of that city. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but, it, but it was that, you know, it was, there was, we all had the, we had places to cut our teeth and play all the time. We were lucky that way. You yeah, know, the, playing, there was the Elks Hall. There was all the Italian halls to play at. Yeah, there was all, all that know. wedding band stuff was real good learning curves for all of us, you know? Yeah. Well, especially wow. in Mike's case, because his dad was such a great jazz guitarist. And so all of, all of his friends were real musicians that read and, and had theory and studied. So Mike just absorbed all that stuff. Like yeah, he, as yeah. much as he, as much as he loved the Beatles, he loved jazz, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was, well, I think that that's kind of what, uh, I think that whole, you know, that schooled music stuff, we all have sort of some elements of that, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe that's kind of what, we were, we like playing rock and roll, but we loved quality music. And I think that yeah. that's one thing we always had was we could appreciate anything, right? As, as musicians, you know, whether it was the, you know, whether it was, you know, just pure harmonies, whether it was, you know, from the thirties, forties, mm -hmm. you know, hard rock Zeppelin, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there was very little that I think that probably we didn't, we may not be our favorite music, but we could appreciate what it was. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think yeah, that's so a lot to do with that. So okay, I'm gonna have to skip. I, we might as well skip through the Shama stuff. We don't. I don't think we need to talk too much about that. But um, when Shama splits up, and you, like I alluded to before, so you and Mike have nothing to do. Brian Wadsworth, I think, the agent who's now married to Darby Mills from the Headpins, he, yeah. did, you were roommates with him at the time, were you not? Yes. Yeah. And he had suggested that maybe since Tommy Stewart was off the road with Trooper, and Trooper were in between albums and tours, that maybe you guys could do this gig together and you guys just go out and play cover songs. And you took your playlist uh, from the uh, electric lunch from, from Sea Fox radio. Cause every night, every afternoon between 12 and one, they would play hits from the sixties yeah, and, uh, and early seventies. So basically you were the first band that played classic rock before it was a term called classic rock. That's, I, yeah, that's, that's about right, Nick. Yeah. yeah, and it was it was pretty insane uh, at, at how huge it hit because it oh was, yeah, it was it was just so serendipitous. It was like the right timing. You guys had nothing to do. You had no gigs. Tommy, okay, well, why don't we just play some old Doors? Let's play some old, uh, you know, play some old this Beatles. Play some old this and played it, and the place was going nuts. Yeah, you know, immediately. Yeah. Yeah, and we were we there, and they were these were tried and true songs that were already sort of 10, 15 years old, so they were established, and we weren't having to try and chase the hits of the day. Right. You know, and all and all that work that went into to learning those songs, we could kind of we kind of not jam them, but we could kind of be a bit have a bit more of a loose format. Mm -hmm. I can remember I remember being one of the first guys to play Roadhouse Blues. Yes. And it's a simple song, but the place go nuts. Yes. You know, that riff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's been played to death now, but I would say literally we're the first band that probably resurrected that song. It was probably played when it was a hit, but it probably hadn't been played by a band for over a decade. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. And uh, and so that that carried you through until your audition with Streetheart, and then off yeah. you went. Now, um, and then. I just want to skip over because I really want to get to the Jimmy Barnes era of your of your career. So you had you had great success with Streetheart. I mean, yeah. you had three albums with them, four albums before. Uh, four, yeah, four. Yeah. And by the by, the last album, you were pretty much, I would say, in my eyes, anyway, you were more the principal songwriter than just about anybody by the, the last album you'd done. 
um, it seemed like it to me anyway. I know that all the songs were kind of registered to everybody in the band, but I could sort of hear your your vibe in all of them. Um, I think I was pretty prolific. I mean, I was, I mean, I I, I did nothing but write songs. Right. By that point, I, I was trying to take, I was trying to get as, put as many lessons that I received from uh, our friend Jim Balance into right. play as possible. You know, and and one of those things about, well, writers write, writers write. Like writers don't not write. If you're a songwriter, you have to write songs. Yes. And and basically that's like what even what Don Hanley talks about in their special talking about uh, Jackson Brown, about hearing every morning, hearing the kettle going and then hearing the piano every morning. And then yeah. the piano would stop and the kettle go again, then the piano. And he did this every day. He just went to work writing yeah. songs. So I think I was doing a lot of that at the time, Mick. I was writing all the time. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and And then... Uh, Streetheart split up. Um, uh, I, yeah, I came back to Vancouver in the beginning of 1984, and that's when I I'd taken your spot in Trauma, yes. and that band was falling apart at the same right. time. And you said, "Well, you, you wanted to form a trio, me and me and you." And I said, "Sure." Yeah. And we decided I would play bass. It just made more sense, sure. so I started playing bass at that point. And then uh, and we played with Mike Root briefly until we got Bernie Aubin in, who was yeah. also take he had basically given his notice to the headpins at that point yeah um, and so that that was that lasted for gosh a, a couple but a year or so before yeah. Bernie decided to go back to the headpins yeah it was kind of we were kind of in and out we kind of had we had some we i remember we had a we had some great nights though that was oh. a great band some nights we were, i can remember a couple of nights playing up in edmonton at the racks and just like oh yeah just just ferocious you know really a great band you know just what was that bigger room in Edmonton? It was a highway or something? Oh, I know the one. It was a huge, it, gigantic. It was a big, big room. I remember playing yeah. that. It was just like, it was so impressive. But the Rex was definitely cool because it was it was big enough and yet small enough, you know? Yeah. Well, it was, it was just a perfect size room. Were great, great audiences in Edmonton. I mean, Alberta was always so good oh, to yeah. us. You know, oh, they yeah. Were just, and they were always just having big fun and, you know. Yeah. You know, Yay! Oh, yeah, <laughs> crossing the border, crossing the border. Yeah, geez, yeah. We we just loved Alberta so much. It was yeah. Alberta was so good to Sham, especially. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so um. So we're in nineteen eighty four. You come back. We form Paradox. Uh, Bernie ends up quitting Paradox to go back with the Headpins, and you and I are left with nothing to do. So once again, in a weird way, now we start working with Ziggy Joe Zicardo, who is uh, uh, assistant manager at a nightclub downtown, and they throw him on drums with me and you. And much the same as Trauma started, me and you started doing the last two sets on a Friday and Saturday night. Yeah. And that's how we made it through that. Then yeah. nightclubs were going, well, if you guys are going to have Jeff and Mick, we want Jeff and Mick too. So we needed to find a drummer. And of course, Ziggy couldn't come with us because he's the assistant manager of the embassy. Right. And uh, and so we needed to find a drummer. And uh, all along through the Shammy years, we'd heard of this drummer, Mark LaFrance, who played with his band called Crocus, an <laughs> incredible high tenor drummer guy. And we get it's so funny. You know, it was November 1st of 1985. The 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 outlaws asked us to come in and do their closing weekend. And uh we asked Mark if he would join. Mark said, okay, yeah, I'll do some covers, but I don't want to sing any covers. I just want to do my own material, as he said at the time. And <laughs> so our very first gig was November 1st of 1985, and I've been working with them ever since. <laughs> it's the yeah. worst damn thing. We're, we're going on 40 years together. Wow. It's wow. Crazy. It's really? crazy. Bizarre. But anyway, so um, so 
so then we play with me, you, and Mark for a period yeah. of time. And now you get the Jimmy Barnes call. So let's get into that. How did all that come together? Well, that was just kind of a, you know, that call just came out of the blue one day. Bruce Allen called me up and asked me, you know, in his own wonderfully brusque way, if I was interested in going to work with this guy, Jimmy Barnes, down and uh, with ZZ Top because his guitar player was leaving. You know, a few expletives in there from Bruce, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and and he said, can you go tomorrow? I said, well, no, I'm actually working. Where I think we were playing some gigs. I said, I could go Monday. And he said, yeah, okay. And you're going to have to sneak across the border because it's too late to get your work visa. Oh, God. So Colleen and I drive down to, down. we go to Seattle, except I've got my guitar with me, right? And border guy, why have you got a guitar with you? I said, well, I'm a professional. I got to practice all the time. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. So we basically got across the border, went straight to the airport, and I got on the plane and flew to, uh, I can never remember, it was, we either flew to Kansas City and I saw them play in the next night we were in St. Louis or it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those, those two cities that were, were, were the first time I saw the band was easy. And the first night I played with them, I think, which was maybe there was a night off in between, but it was basically, I got to see them play once. We had a half hour rehearsal backstage and then we hit the stage. Yeah. And Jimmy Barnes, now there's, there's an absolute shame that North America has never realized how incredible he is in Australia. And, and, Europe, but especially Australia. I mean, he is—he's a household name. Yes, he is, and 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 probably the greatest rock and roll singer I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, he is a Mick. He his last album reached number one. It, it gives him more number one albums in Australia than any artist of all time, including the Beatles. Wow, he was tied with the Beatles at fourteen. Wow, he said two best-selling books. You know, he's he's got, you know. A, a dozen grandkids, you know, is a beautiful family. He's just like, he is an incredible person. He's, he's, he's done duets with every, the greatest singers in the world, Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Rod Stewart. Uh, you know, it's just a huge list of people that he's worked with and, and, and done Joe Bonamassa, you know, just. It's amazing. And that tour that you were asked to go on was basically to try to break him in North America. And that was, no, yes. Bruce was managing him for that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce had, uh, had gone over, I think, previously to Australia because Brian Adams was doing some shows with the police. This would be nineteen. Right. That makes sense. Okay, I, I got the timeline there because I remember that. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and then and I think Bruce, being the guy, is he's going, okay, so what's going on down here? Who's big? Like, what's going on? Right. And so he heard about Jimmy Barnes, and you know, and probably knew a bit about him, anyways. And and Jimmy had just recently uh, split from Cole Chisel and was was building a solo career. And I think that there is a, an interest in Bruce bringing him over to North America. And I think Jimmy was probably interested in seeing if he could break the North American market for right. a while. Then I think he would, I think Jimmy spent about a year, the, the, you know, we work in that market, work in the U S market. And I just think, I think it, it wasn't his cup of tea. I don't think he really enjoyed having to do all the sort of the, the the work that it took to break into the U.S. market. I mean, it involves a whole lot of of uh, you know meeting people and getting talking to people and doing all that stuff. Things that I think that he just not that he would couldn't be bothered with, but I think he was already so well established in Australia that yeah, had it happened ten or fifteen years earlier, but by yeah, then it was yeah. been there, done that. As far as you know, I don't think yeah. that he meant it like he didn't want to do it. It just he just kind of went ah, I'm going to go back to this. You know, I want to go back to Australia. I think after touring with ZZ for three months. 
and they had toured longer actually, so probably about five months for them. There are they, they, I mean, you know, basically we go up and play for 25 minutes and get booed, you know, for 25 minutes, you know, and well, they and, were the biggest band in America at the time. Well, it was in, yeah, well, they were huge. I mean, and we come off stage and, and the crew guys come up and I'm going to, you know, they come up with this big, long Texas draw. So guys, they really like you guys. They don't want to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, cause this, they're, they're ZZ fans are there for ZZ alone. Yeah, you know, ask any band that's opened up for ZZ Top, and they said, "Guys, it used to be a lot worse about ten years ago. Now they got hits, so they got they got some females in the audience. It used to be just all guys, right? You know, it was a hardcore rock and roll audience, right? Yeah. So it's like the ACDC audience, right? You'll go to see ACDC. Oh, try and open up for ACDC. Pretty yeah. tough. No you know, kidding. It's great. You know, it's a testament to the fans. And you, so your Jimmy Barnes tenure lasted for about ten years, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, from nine, this February of nineteen eighty six until January of nineteen ninety seven. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. And, and then you came back, to, and then you, after that. So, how many albums were you involved with with Jimmy when you were there? Uh, I think that uh, there, I, I did six albums with him. There might be there's be stuff on other sort of retrospectives and that too. But though I, we did six studio albums together, and and you did a lot of co-writes with him as well, right? Yeah, that that co-writing thing kind of grew out, grew over time. Uh, it didn't start out that way, but I did get a, uh, 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 I didn't get to he, the first album he recorded after I started playing with him was an album called uh, Freight Train Heart. Okay. Wonderful. I uh, didn't get to play on it because his producer was Jonathan Kane and Jonathan enlisted Neil Sean to play guitar, uh, Tony Brock to play drums and Randy Jackson to play bass. And that was the nucleus of the band that recorded that record. So, you know, I was a little disappointed, but I was still fresh to the band. I was still just a touring guy, but uh, I did get a co-write on that album. Uh, that a song that Jimmy and I, an idea that I presented to him that Jimmy contributed to that we ended up, the Jim balance called a co-wrote helped us complete and Jonathan Kane also got a little bit of, of that song. So, so I did have a, I can say I have a co-write with Jonathan Kane and Jim Balance and Jimmy Barnes on that, on that album, which is kind yeah, of cool. Great. But, but, but I continued the more, the longer that I spent with Jimmy, we developed a good working relationship together, especially when I moved down there and was down there all the time. You know, Jimmy was just, Hey, Jeff, come on over. I got a couple ideas I want you to help me out with. Right. And that's well, how it worked. Well, the intensity, I mean, you were always such an intense performer. You still are to this day. You were always an intense performer. You like to put on a show and play with incredible finesse all at the same time. I still remember you doing my old school with, with Shama, doing all those licks, those skunk Baxter licks and stuff like that, while while jumping in the air and falling in splits, like full yeah. splits while you're doing it. Like, not only were you playing the most incredible guitar parts, and people are going, he's also doing gymnastics, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> incredible. But I, the only reason I say that is because Jimmy is such an incredibly intense performer. So yes, you, yes. I, I, I sort of picture you guys, I never saw you guys live, but I sort of picture you guys as like these two energy balls on stage with the band in the background just going, okay, let's hold it together. These guys are going nuts, you know? That's kind of what it, that's kind of that's kind of what it was. That's yeah. kind of what it was. I mean, you know, I was, you know, I th I think it took some time, but I think Jimmy realized that was a good foil for him, you know, not dissimilar to the way not that I would compare myself to these great men, but the way Keith Richards is for Mick Jagger, the way Jimmy Page was for Robert Plant, the way right. Joe Perry is for Steven Tyler. Right. You know, that that kind of classic guitar player, some guy to lean on. And Jimmy liked it because he said, hey, you're a big bastard. You're hard to knock down. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. and, you know, and, 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 and so we had a, you know, we had a, and, and I could keep up with them. Like he'd give it, you know, he'd give me some stick and I could, and he'd say, you know what, you know, you get out there every night and you leave it all on the stage, you know, and I, and being the kind of guy, and that was the, one of the greatest compliments I ever got from him was when he would acknowledge me on that level, you know, yeah. you give it everything you got. And when he's that, that's Jimmy Barnes saying that to me, boy, that's, that's means something to me. Yeah. 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 Especially, you know, cause yeah. Like what a performer, what a voice. Oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, like for, for anybody that is listening to this and doesn't know who Jimmy Barnes is, check it out. Just you go need to, check you it need out. You need to seek him out. You need to seek him out. You know. Yeah, it's like you've never heard a rock and roll voice like that in your life. Yeah, with that much intensity all the time. Yeah, yeah. No, he's. Uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was all or nothing with Jimmy. I mean, you had to be committed, even if you're writing, if you're practicing. I mean, you could walk through a song, but okay, let's do it now for real. You know, I can remember that. And I remember <laughs> we do rehearsals for tours and he's and we do we'd rehearse usually for a couple, three weeks getting ready for a tour. And Jimmy wouldn't come the first week. And he'd just say, Jeff, get them ready. Make sure they're ready when I come. You know, and so I remember we were running through songs and guys would be kind of dogging. I say, guys, you know, you know, I you may think I'm being a little bit of a, you know, a, you know, a tyrant here, but if this is not together, first of all, Jimmy's gonna kill me, then he's gonna kill all you guys. Yeah. So and I don't want that. I don't want to be dead. <laughs> you know, right. he just expected that. He expected it to be ready. So when he walked in the room, okay, right, you know, we're at game speed. Let's go. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and I just, and I just, I mean, he's always set the bar. Jimmy Barnes sets the bar for that level. And I just, you know, I'd say as a friendly um, challenge to everybody, get over that bar. Try, mm -hmm. you know, what, yeah. a, what, a, what, a, what, a, what, what, what an inspiration he was. Well, and, 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 you you continue to inspire. I mean, your Facebook with your you know your music one on one stuff. I mean, you're always you you've made your Facebook a place for people to go, where they're 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 not just following your career with Streetheart and what you guys are up to. They're also going there for inspiration on a daily basis, which yeah. is which is pretty cool. You know, yeah. you've developed a huge following just by being this positive influence on a world that can be so dark sometimes these days. Well, the, I, I don't ignore the darkness. I just don't choose to focus on it because there's enough people doing that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I haven't got my head in the sand about, about things. I just, I, I, there's just choices that you can make. And I would rather, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, unicorns and, and fairy dust. I'm just talking about, you know, seeking out the highest version of yourself. Right. right. You know, that's, we, we can do that on a, we can all do that every day. Whatever that version is, there is the highest version of ourselves to right. be had every day. Right. You know, I don't always find it myself. Some days I just, I just sit in my the worst version of myself all day. Well, that's probably the days you don't post. Those, those are the days that I don't post. Yeah. Instead of instead of posting something dark because you feel dark, you just choose to ignore it. Mm, you yeah. Know? People don't don't, don't don't make it a public thing. No, 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 no. It's it's something that I have to work out. I think that I think that more people could do that rather than using it to, you know, look for some kind of, they want some, somebody to agree with them or something like that. I, I don't know what it is. I, you know, I, I just, I mean, we all have choices. That's just my choice. That's what I choose. You know, if I'm having a tough, tough go, I usually don't, I, I don't think that's where I'm going to go to get advice. I'll call people personally, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, I have a good support system at home here too. So we're not as a great, great girl. She's an incredible human being. Unbelievable. She's, like really, yeah. uh, great. I, I couldn't be happier for you. I well, mean, she's, she's, she's marvelous. I, I'm I, honored I knew it from the first moment I met her. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm honored to be in her life. She's just, she's just her, you know, she's got an incredible brain. She's got a beautiful heart. Yeah. You know, she's got a wicked sense of humor and a work ethic, she's got a beautiful like laugh. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and, and it's like you know, she, and and she encourages you to be your best self all the time. I mean, yes, we've, we've had heart to hearts about it, and you know, I I'm just you know, I'm I'm incredibly happy. I mean, it brings tears to my eyes to see you this happy. You know? Oh, Mickey, thank it you. Really does. Well, yeah. You know, we all deserve happiness in our lives, and sometimes we just have to be open to it. I yeah. think. I think she helped me to be open to it because I think I, initially I was kind of, ah, I was, she, she laughed. She said, you're kind of like Shrek. Go away. You know, yeah. leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm happy. <laughs> you know, but uh, here we are, you know, and it's great. Yeah. Well, th- th- I, honestly, I think in a way this she, uh, she uses a bit of my playbook. I think one of the reasons that kept you and I so close is I knew when to leave you alone. Mm-hmm. I know there's certain times of the day that you need to do your thing. And she's known that too, which yeah. is where she's not in your face about it. She goes, okay. You know, yeah. That, that's, and, that's Jeff's time. I'll let, let Jeff have his time and then I'll get a better Jeff later. You know, well, when, when Jeff is when Jeff, not, not, not a better Jeff, but a Jeff that yeah. feels like he's done what he needs to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and we talk about that a lot and I, and I do, I, I, I think we all have to kind of honor that, that we need, we all need some time to work on the things that we do. And, you know, Mick, as writers, artists, uh, you know, people come in the house and go, Jesus, it's really quiet in here. And I go, not in my head. My head is going crazy. You know, you know there's a song going on. There, you, I, you, you know, we, we need silence to write. Yeah. You know, you can't write when there's chaos and noise going on. You know, if the, I mean, it. You know, life can be. You know, can have its joy, joyful cacophony, I guess. But if we're going to be a writer, you need silence to let the music, to be able to hear the music. You know, to be and to or be able to hear the words that you need to write. You know, you need that. So, so Mick, you're you're right. I mean, I think that's been a good part of our friendship is that we we uh, that that we know when to sort of go. Okay. You need your space, and Renata has been very much like that. So yeah. I think that that's uh, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's uh, yeah. I, that's been some of the failures of relationships in the past. Is just mm-hmm. not allowing you to be you. you know, yeah. Because- well, and sometimes we give up too. I mean, we can't just point the finger at the other person. You know, it's what we ask for and how we ask for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. in a way that's that's constructive, that's respectful. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's taken me a lifetime. To learn how to do these things, you know, no, yeah, still learning. Well, yeah, well, that's that's what it's all about. I want to let's see. I, no, we should I, actually. We have to carry on. I better not. I okay, <laughs> so now because there's just so much to tell. So now the Jimmy Barnes thing has is over now after ten years or eleven years. Mm-hmm. And you come back to Vancouver. You start working on jingles and doing the sort of jingle market stuff. You yeah. and I did some more stuff together. Yeah, um, played with Hattrick, Bernie, and me and you got back together again. By that yeah. time, I'd had I'd been using the Paradox name with other guys. Yeah, uh, and uh, so you guys wanted to play together again, but we couldn't call it Paradox unless we played in Alberta. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and so we we had to call it Hat Trick, and that lasted for a while. And then um, there's there's a period of between Hat Trick and when you joined Street Art that I'm that I'm sort of wondering what you were up to at that time, aside from doing your jingles. Uh yeah, I I mean I I had a um, I I got into a. Um, uh, you know, I had, I had some personal stuff that I had to sort of work through. I got myself into sort of a, a, a few, just you know, 
a relationship that, that didn't exactly work out and I had to work through that. And you know how life can get to be tough sometimes and you lose some time. Oh, I know. One of the things, you became the musical director of a Disney pro- a show. Yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, so that's the thing. That's 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 the piece I was missing because, yes, you had bridged into like television work and all that stuff too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I did and I did that. And then, you know, I just, like I say, I had some, I had a few life issues to sort of work through and which, you know, and and. Because I guess the the universe wasn't was wasn't finished with teaching me a few things, right? Right. But I did learn some things along the way, and uh, you know I think I came out of that. Uh, it came at a price, but I think that I, I got some very very valuable lessons from that particular time. So I, and then I kind of resurfaced at the end of two thousand and three professionally uh, when Kenny Shields asked me if I wanted to come back and start doing some shows with Streetheart again. And I take full credit. Yes, yes. Because I was, I was playing. You I, can tell I, the I was, folks about that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was. I was with Randy Backman, and we were on the show. Troopers on the show. Loverboy was on the show, and Streetheart was on the show, mm-hmm. and and uh, Glass Tiger. It was. was that Bay person. Roberts, Nick? Was that Bay Roberts, Newfoundland? It was Bay Roberts. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and I remember going back, and and I was. I remember watching Kenny with the band. And I was going, well, this is great, but man, I could sure use Jeff up there, you know. I mean, it'd be, it'd be really great if Jeff was up there. So I went backstage and I, and I said to Kenny, I said, boy, I said, great band, man. But you ever thought about working with Jeff? Don't talk to me about Jeff. I was going through some stuff and he never even, he never even called me. I said, oh, you don't know that Jeff's been going through stuff? He goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> I said, well, Jeff's been going through some pretty heavy trials and tribulations lately, you know, using different words than that. But, yeah. and, and he goes, uh, he goes, oh, I, I, I didn't realize that. He says, I feel bad now. I said, yeah. I said, really? You should give him a call. <laughs> and <laughs> lo and behold, he gave you a call. And I think they they played somewhere a couple of weeks later or something. You were in the in the audience. Yeah, they played a little music festival in Tawasson. That's what it was, Tawasson. Yeah. Right? I yeah, knew I was going to say Richmond, but yeah. Yeah, it was Tawasson. Yeah, uh-huh. and we went out there and it was uh, and you know and got to uh, and kind of reconnected that way. And I think that you know, I mean, sometimes. You know, you if you don't always stay in contact, you think things are going on, and you don't realize that someone else is going through mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I wasn't aware till I talked to Kenny after that he had gone, you know, had surgery and had a, you know, a, a, you know, heart surgery at that time. That was right at the end of 1999, I want to say, kind of thing. But you know, I mean, but but you know, I mean, we got through all that stuff real quick. And we right. got on. We got on with the business of, of doing some good music together again. Right, right. Well, you certainly That's got some great. You got some great tracks out of them uh, in the recent years when you're doing some of those covers. It was like, oh wow, yeah, really, yeah, that was really a great. Good. Well, you know, Kenny's strength was his ability to take a song and own it. Yeah, under my thumb, for example. Yeah, well, wow, that was, Tin Soldier. I mean, it, tons yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Here comes the night. Same thing. Yeah. I mean, he he really Kenny could really take ownership of a song. That was his. That was his forte. Uh, you know, as as Daryl Gutel likes to say, you believe him. You know, yeah. you, like a singer, you want to believe a singer. You know, some singers can sing, but you don't believe them. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, ah, I'm not believing what you're telling me here. But some singers can just, they they just expose so much of their soul that you just believe what they do. And Kenny Shields, that was one of his gifts for sure. And then, of, and then of course, street art is cruising really good. You guys are doing more and more shows per year. Everything's going great. Uh, the band is probably as as good as it's ever been, if not better, because yeah. now you've got some years behind you and you know uh, education, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then then Kenny takes ill, yeah, and and ultimately passes away. Yeah, it's like, and now you're going now what? 
you know, yeah. like, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the whole period of time between, uh, Kenny, Kenny's sickness and he was trying to deal with it and still trying to perform when we all know by now that he probably shouldn't have done that. He, yeah. nobody, nobody realized how sick he really was. Yeah. And he never wanted to reveal it because he didn't want to stop playing. No. That's and true. so, uh, and then, you know, then there's, so you're going, okay, now what, what do we carry on? Are the fans going to accept us? What's good. You know, if we do carry on, how would that be? You know, I mean, we, we have to respect Kenny's memory, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, it was, that was a tough go too. You've been definitely been uh, through some valleys, buddy. Well, uh, you know, I mean, thankfully, you know, the, 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 I mean, it was so, when, when Kenny, we just didn't know what we we're going to do. Like, what do we do? Jeez. How do you replace a voice like Kenny Shields? So mm-hmm. unique. Yes. Uh, and I mean, it, 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 trying to find, someone who could sing that catalog of songs, mm-hmm. you know, it just, I mean, we didn't, we didn't know. I'm just like, Oh, okay. Maybe this is it. But, you know, I mean, we, we did the benefit for, you know, we were that summer, the summer that, that we lost Kenny, that was uh, in, he passed in July of July 21st of, uh, of 2017. Uh, we had a, a show booked at the end of August. that was going to be this, classic rock fest show that they were doing at Shaw park, which is the baseball stadium in downtown Winnipeg. And there was, you know, it was a, it was us and Harlequin, uh, headpins, honeymoon suite. It was a big, all, you know, Canadian, um, day of rock and roll. Um, and then when Kenny got sick, it became a benefit concert for him. We're going to do a benefit show for him. And then when he passed, it became a memorial show. And that's when the, that's when the lover boy guys said, we're going to come. We, we, we need to be there, you know, especially Paul and Matt with their, you know, and of course, Spider was, has been with Loverboy since, you know, for 23 years now. Uh, you know, he, and being part of Streetheart, of course, a founding member of Streetheart, he, along with Paul and Matt, on their own dime, came to Winnipeg to be part of that show. And so did Mike Reno and Kathy and Catherine St. Germain, you know, right. so that was a wonderful, you know, wonderful gesture on their part to do that. And then we 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 did the show. Oh, hang on a second, here, Mickey. Sorry. Anyways, folks, where were we? Anyways, um, you were cutting. Yeah, we talked about you're, you're doing the uh, the memorial uh, concert for him. Yeah, we were doing them. We we did, and you know, we had rehearsals. Basically, the 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 idea was to have all the different singers who are singing on the bill come up and sing a song. Right. And they all and and a few local are a few local vocalists that we had. Uh, and, you know, we knew about Paul McNair. I mean, I had seen him sing with Harlequin. I'm going, man, what a voice this guy's got. You know, and I and we had met a few times, and he was a real nice, upbeat, kind of happy guy, really just positive, kind of like Brian Armstrong, you know, very up, you know, never in a bad mood. Right. And uh, and really talented and really confident. And, uh, and just, I really liked him. And he came up and just, he said, I know all your songs. Yeah, I know your whole catalog. <laughs> wow. You know, so, so. He basically sang the bulk of the of the, the set, and we brought up all these different singers to sing, and everybody did a great job. It was wonderful. It was real. It was a just a beautiful night, um, and you know, it was just I went, man, this. It, I mean, not only did we need to find a singer who could sing this really hard catalog of songs, we also needed someone who could front this band. Right. 
That's no easy feat. That's harder. That's a harder job is to be the front person. You got to stand in front of Daryl Gutel and Spider Sineve. Yeah. You know, and me. Not that I'm and Jeff. And Jeff. You know, no, what I mean? yeah. you know, you know, you got to stand in front of all of us guys and be the front man. Mm-hmm. You know, so we're not going to give you a pass. No. We're going to make it really hard for you. But right. Paul was really, he's done a wonderful job. You know, he's done it with respect. He's done it with talent, you know. Um you know, and, and one of the other things that, you know, we would talk to fans and they'd come up to us and they go, so what are you guys going to do? Like, you know, and, and we'd always ask them, we go, what do you think we should do? Mm-hmm. You know, we would thought what we wanted to know what people thought about going on. Like people going, yeah, you, you know, you guys shouldn't go on. But people kind of went, we love Kenny, but you guys got to find a way to keep playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the the fans want to hear the music. I mean, they love Kenny. I mean, Kenny was just like, I mean, for for so many of our fans, I mean, he's the voice of the of streetheart, right? You know, well, they and, grew up, they grew up with him. And they grew up with him. Mm-hmm. But they but they do love the songs. And I think that, you know, Paul has stepped in. He's not trying to be Kenny Shields. Mm-hmm. He's just a great singer who's capable of singing these songs. Mm-hmm. And I think that everyone that comes out, you know, will see the show and go, they do. They say, Well, I miss Kenny, but this guy's great. This guy's really good. I mean, it's you're not saying he's better or, or it's just he's different and he's able to sing the songs and he's able to sing them in a way that people go, I recognize these tunes, right, right. you know, and because he's his voice is in such good shape, uh, we're able to do some songs that we're that Kenny was having a hard time with towards the end that we would leave out of our set, which is kind of fun to do that. And again, I mean, you know, Paul is not trying to sound like Kenny. We got we got demo tapes from a number of singers who could sound like Kenny, but I said, that's not really what we're looking for because people will go, well, he sounds sort of like Kenny, but he's not Kenny. Mm-hmm. You know, you need someone to come in who can identify. You know, can yeah, put, put, their own, put their own fingerprint on it. Yeah. Put their own fingerprint on it, but do it. But, but Paul's done it in a way that it's still very much street art. You know, I mean, people still get the essence of the band. Well, all the reports are fabulous. Everything yeah. I've ever heard, you know, the, yeah. the street art has always been the, the band that people should see live and uh, that hasn't gone away. I mean, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Streetheart was always the best live Canadian band ever. You know, there, there was always that intensity that was adopted from the early days, you know, yeah. that it never, never left. There was always that intensity, like every, so every moment on stage matters. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, Mick, the, the, the spirit of the original band, the founding members, is still very much in this band. You know, I mean, I have so much respect for Paul Dean and his playing uh, that, you know, I'm always trying to honor his parts as best as I can. And I try and I've learned a lot from him over the years. He's taught me, he's, he's been quite an influence on my career. You know, I mean, he's a very, uh, Paul Dean has, hasn't played very many extra bad notes ever. Every note he plays matters. Yeah. He, 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 he plays carefully and he makes the right choices. Yeah. 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 He's a very, he's got a real good bluesy sense, but he's really melodic, you know, and, and he's a great rhythm player, you know, yes. learning his parts really taught me a lot about playing rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. Well, it kind of, it kind of suits to what we were talking about earlier. You, you're, you've always been about the groove anyway. So it sort yes. of fits, it sort of fits your DNA, you know? Yeah, it does. Um, it does. Anyway, it does. I, I, we, uh, it goes on and on with with Streetheart. I mean, you guys are still out. You're playing a, a good bunch of shows this year. Finally, yes, after are, COVID, yep. finally the COVID thing has passed, and you guys can get back to work. Yep, and uh, making fans happy everywhere. And so, uh, what? How many years 
Is it for street art now? Like uh, the, the band uh, was uh, was established in 1976, so that makes 47 years. This is our for, the band's 47th year. Wow, incredible! And this incredible. is my 42nd. So I'm the new guy. <laughs> you love that eh? okay pal well that was fantastic it's so funny because i actually learned stuff about you i didn't know wow okay Make which is just, good that's what i wanted to do i just questions i've never asked <laughs> it's been fantastic Nick, i you know i mean we could talk for days you know that yeah of course and we will because we'll probably yeah. talk next week too <laughs> okay yeah i'll call you tomorrow hey Mick, so how are you doing <laughs> all right take take okay, care Mickey. jeff thanks a lot okay. for everything and yeah. uh enjoy the rest of your day whatever's left of it it's pretty late there so oh that's okay making always it was it was it was a lot of fun i just i just loved it i you know time flew way too fast so <laughs>